Praised be Jesus, now and forever. Good morning. I wanted to say good mystical morning here in Mount Angel. Not that it's particularly uh, misty today. It's a very sunny day with a um, hmm, distinct odor of cows lingering in the air. <laughs> it's a typical uh, springtime experience up here at Mount Angel, middle of farm country. Um, we got the smell of the cows, we got sheep. The monks here keep their own flocks. Um, so we're very often hearing them braying late into the night. Sometimes you hear the sound of coyotes howling out there. We had a bishop come visit recently and in his, uh, in his homily in the morning, he said he was awakened at 5.15 by the sound of the bells ringing for prayer and subsequently by the sound of all the coyotes <laughs> all surrounding the hilltop in the different fields and valleys around us, all howling at once at the sound of the bells. He said they couldn't help it. Their, their position was revealed. <laughs> they had to sing back to, to the sound of the bells. Well, it's been a few weeks since the last time I recorded this podcast. I apologize for the uh, long delay between episodes. It's just such a busy time of year. This week I uh, had a couple midterms already with more yet to come. We had a benefit dinner on Sunday, which always, um, although it's a dinner, it really takes up the whole day. We had to travel. I was down in Eugene, which is um, about an hour and a half drive from here. Um, And then we had to arrive early, of course, to rehearse. Uh, (laughs) Well, I say to rehearse. But no, we we did uh, the seminarians put on a little bit of entertainment for these kind of dinners. So we we have a procession. We all walk in with candles, and there are a few songs that we sing, um, and some different things that are done to entertain our benefactors. So we got there early to practice that, and then we uh, had a, a social, of course, a little cocktail hour before the dinner, and so we ended up, uh, you know, leaving here about. I think about 11.30, 11.45 in the morning, and we were back about 10 p.m. <laughs> so it really, really takes up the whole day, which is all right. It was fun. It was a good opportunity to uh, be with the people who <clears throat> really are the reason that, that we're able to be here. Um, they support us financially and, and with their prayers as well. And keep keep, um, keep the Abbey well furnished with cash as well as all the other necessities, things that, things that are needed in order to sustain the way of life we have here and make it possible for, for us to study for the priesthood. So it was great to spend some time down there in, in Eugene with our good benefactors. I sat with a group of ladies from St. Mark's Parish, which has generously adopted me. I got a call from my vocations director last year saying, Matt, how would you like to go down to Eugene to give a vocations testimony? I said, okay, I wouldn't mind. Not sure if it is maybe the most prudent thing for me to do right now, because uh, at that time also, I was very swamped (laughs) with homework and studies. I said, but if you you ask me to go, I'll go. And he said, I'm asking you to go. I said, all right, I'll go. (laughs) Then he said, this parish has uh, asked if they can adopt you. I said, well, what does that mean? <laughs> he said, well, they're going to be praying for you. 
They're going to be uh, helping support you specifically financially with your tuition and so on, expenses. And uh, they like to have, have a relationship with you where you can come to their parish, speak about vocations, come in and, uh, and be present with them sometimes. I said, wow, that sounds great. And it really has been great. I haven't had many opportunities to go down and visit them. In fact, I don't think I've been back since that initial vocations talk. Went with one other brother, Sebastian. But uh, they're a very good community. If any of them are listening, you guys are great. And it was a real pleasure to, to have dinner with them on Sunday. So anyway, but we had that. Um, then today, my final, not the final draft, but the complete draft on my thesis is due. The difference is um, we'll get another chance to revise it, you know, after we get feedback from our committee. But um, had to get that done for today. I was up to about 1.30 in the morning, <laughs> putting the finishing touches on the last section and the conclusion. Um, so the last like five or 10 pages of the thesis are pretty rough. In total, it's, it's uh, about 60 pages now. So it's been a great adventure writing that, researching it. Um, a little bit beyond the scope of what I thought it would be. Good morning. So it's been a great adventure, just writing that, researching it. Um, my topic is on the, the relationship between poetry and philosophy. Um, my argument is that, and I, don't worry, I won't get into all 60 pages of it here, <laughs> but the basis of the argument is that poetry and philosophy are best understood as complementary disciplines, not as competitors for the truth. Um, so there's been kind of an, an age-old quarrel, right, between poets and philosophers, which you, you may know of. Um, it's immortalized, for example, in Plato's dialogues, uh, especially in Plato's Republic. In the Republic, he, he launches kind of a polemic against the poets. He says, uh, among other things, that art is just an imitation of an imitation um, based on his theory of the form. So the only real thing are the, the forms the forms of the things. Um, the material things we encounter are one degree removed from reality, and the, the artistic renditions of things like paintings or poems, things like that, are just copies of those copies of what is ultimately real, uh, the forms. Good morning. So for Plato, um, the artist does not really fit into his ideal society. He argues further that the poets just serve to kind of stir up the passions. They, they, they undermine reason. His whole argument is that um, to achieve the ideal republic, this utopia, which will be ruled, of course, if you remember your Plato, by a philosopher king, <laughs> um, then everyone must, everyone must be ruled by reason. It must be kind of this cool and, and, and impartial um, decision-making society. And so he argues that the poets have no place in that. Why? Because the poets, the poets undermine reason's ability to be indifferent. Newton's ability to make decisions on a purely rational basis, right? So he says that um, th this is an ancient quarrel, even from the time Plato was writing. He says that he's not the, the origin of this. It's been going on for centuries, long before he put pen to paper. <laughs> so even in his day, this was ancient. And one of the sources that I use for my paper uh, quotes, I believe, Friedrich Nietzsche, who wrote that Homer versus Plato... 
um, Homer, the greatest poet of the ancient world, right? And Plato, kind of the father of philosophy. Nietzsche said, Homer versus Plato is life's fundamental antithesis. <laughs> so yeah, this is a pretty serious uh, uh, quarrel that's been going on for quite some time. And there's many, many examples of it going on throughout history. I, I won't I won't cite any anymore. But my argument in this thesis is that poetry and philosophy are not best understood as competitors for the truth, as if one or the other has to be the, the sole arbiter of truth, or the only avenue to arrive at truth. Rather, that they're best understood as what I call in this, in this argument, significant others. Um, so they're others to one another. <laughs> Just kind of a funny way of saying it. I don't think I've ever said it out loud until now. <laughs> Maybe I've got to revise that before my thesis defense. I don't know if I'll be able to say it without laughing. Uh, right, but they're, so they're others, others to one another. Uh, insofar as, well, think about complementarity in like, a, in like human relationships or society. Uh, you have to have similarity and, and difference, right? The two are joined. Good morning. So that's the argument um, in a nutshell, is that poetry and philosophy have within themselves an intrinsic similarity and an irreducible difference. The intrinsic similarity, the principle of similarity for them, is they both arise from wonder, um, from man's just kind of like sheer sense of astonishment at finding himself in the midst of this community of being and of being himself somehow other to it. So again, uh, like the, there's this also notion of, of complementary similarity and difference between mind and being. Mind kind of awakens in astonishment, finds itself in the midst of, of being, but it's also somehow other to being, right? Because mind can reflectively think about the existence of beings other than itself. It knows itself as a, I mean, I, I, you know, it's funny to speak about mind as it. I know myself as a, a particular I, and I know the other as a that or a thou. So um, there's already this complementarity structure. So um, poetry and philosophy both arise from that first experience of wonder, of uh, what the philosopher William Desmond calls mindful joy, which I just love. Mindful joy at finding itself in the midst of beings, of otherness. And furthermore, poetry and philosophy are similar in that they, they both strive to say no I'll say that differently they, they both test the boundaries of what may be said at all so they both operate um, by means of language they're, they're um, yeah they're linguistic in nature which uh, by that I simply mean that that their data that their means of expression is in language, fundamentally bound in language. Language is the means and the limit of what they can say, but they always try to test the boundaries, don't they? Philosophy and poetry are seeking, like, what's the uppermost limit of what I can say? I want to say even more than can be said. You know, they're striving against the limit. They're trying to articulate the ultimate, and this is, this is the second part of my argument in the thesis for their similarity. They're trying to articulate what is ultimate. So they're trying to go beyond what is simply finite, what is imminent, presented to us, to describe something beyond but mediated through the finite. And I know this is a little bit technical. I, I won't get into it any more than this, except to say 
um, the means by which poetry and philosophy articulate the ultimate is how they differ. So that's how they're complementary. They're both coming from the same source, this wellspring of wonder, mindful joy, and they're both fundamentally aiming for the same thing, which is to articulate some aspect of that of the ultimate, of truth which is transcendent. But how do they do it? Philosophy is trying to do it by the means of abstract reason, abstraction, you know, uh, um, deriving universal laws, universal transcendent principles. Um, think of metaphysics, you know, things like that. Poetry is trying to do it by remaining mindful, by remaining mindful of particular things. So you can see this very, very clearly. Um, oh, think of <laughs> my main, uh, my main example, my main dude in my thesis is Gerard Manley Hopkins. If any of you know me at all, you'll know that Hopkins is my favorite poet. Um, I have a real special affinity for him. I've read just about everything he's written. And uh, so kind of the paradigm case, even for what I'm talking about, is found in Hopkins' poem, um, As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim in roundy well stones ring. As each tucked string tells, each hung bell's bow swung will fling out broad its name. And then he says, and this is the key, each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out that being indoors each one dwells. Selves goes itself, myself it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. I say more, the just man justices, keeps grace which keeps all his goings graces, Acts in God's eye what in God's eye he is, Christ. For Christ plays in ten thousand places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. And that lovely poem is kind of summed up Hopkins's whole uh, principle, his whole like worldview, that the the whole world, every, every individual being, everything doing its particular thing. This bird I just walked by doing its bird thing, sitting in the branch and, and chirping loudly uh, or fluttering overhead. I think I've talked about this before on this podcast, about InScape. Hopkins' notion is that everything doing its thing, uh, <laughs> it's kind of a funny way of saying it, but maybe we could say everything being in its particular like mode of being. Um, being according to its essence, right? By doing that, precisely by doing just what it's made to do, what God made it to do, it's dealing out what it is. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out that being, indoors each one dwells. It's dealing out the being which dwells indoors. It's proclaiming what it is by what it does. And by so doing, it's giving us a glimpse of the being of God. It's giving glory to God and it's revealing God as present, imminently present, in creation. Hopkins's notion is like there's this, this immense divine pressure, just like God's, God's life, God's energy, um, the, the, the life of God in which every living thing shares, which is present in creation, just beneath the surface, and it's like bursting to get out, you know? It's like right there. And all it needs is the, the lightest touch, you know, of one who's sensitive to divine realities for it to gush forth and be revealed. Now that's kind of the, 
the, the, the kernel, um, <laughs> the heart of my capstone, right? So, but, not, but again, philosophy and poetry are complementary. They're not, neither one is the uh, exclusive avenue of the truth, the only bearer of the truth. Philosophy is, you know, my paper is like 80% philosophy. Uh, philosophy is what like allows us to say how this is possible. It gives us the tools to describe what the poets are doing. Um, you know, so poetry and being mindful of these particular things, of, uh, of, of learning how to give that, that touch which allows God's being to burst forth from particular things. Meanwhile, philosophy um, engaged in abstractive reasoning is describing how this is possible. It's ascending higher and higher, explaining the world as we know it. You know, so that the, there's a complementary movement, philosophy going up, um, poetry sort of remaining still and attentive at the initial level. Reminds me kind of of Plato and Aristotle in that famous painting, where Plato's pointing up to the realms of the forms, and Aristotle's hand is out flat, palm down, uh, over the ground, signifying that for him, um, the basis of truth is in the material reality that we know. So there's a similarity there, and you can say maybe analogically between the poet and the philosopher. The poet wants to put the primacy on the world as we know it, as we see it, as we experience it. The philosopher always wants to ascend to the highest heights of abstraction and universal truth. And one is not greater than the other. They're both necessary. What is needed is a, as, as William Desmond says, truly plurivocal approach, plurivocal, uh, multiple voices. You know, one alone will not suffice. But anyway, this was, uh, wow, far more of a tangent than I expected to go on about my thesis. <laughs> Props to you if you're still listening, that's all I have to say. It really has been an adventure for me to work on it. Um, at times it's been very frustrating, just banging my head against the table, sitting there for hours just trying to grind out like one more paragraph or... <laughs> You know, it's like, I know what needs to be said. I just, oh, I can't make myself say it. I don't know why. But now coming to the end, um, 60 pages on paper. Turning it in today. Get my last round of feedback. One of my brothers is reading over it too. And uh, I already am sharing in the, the, the feeling of relief at having it done. It's not totally done yet because I got to do the last round of changes and I have to defend it. And uh, before I can graduate, I still got midterms to do, and I got other papers to write, and final exams, and da 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 da. But this is like the first fruits of the relief that will come on the day that I graduate in a couple more months. So, um, thanks be to God, I'm already feeling that little bit of that lightness. And I'm out for a walk, and I'm recording this podcast, which I haven't done in, in a few weeks. So, this is wonderful. What I actually wanted to talk about today was not primarily poetry and philosophy. Uh, <laughs> the other day, my brother Ian, um, who is the uh, student body president for our for the College of Philosophy at Mount Angel, um, he asked me. So every month we have a, a college house meeting for all of us guys. We live in Saint Anselm Hall, so we have the Saint Anselm's house meeting. It's kind of for like just community information and share what's coming up and some things like that. But one thing that Ian has started doing this year is having particular guys at each house meeting stand up and share some aspect of their testimony. 
So the other day, uh, he asked me if I would be willing to do that. And our house meeting is today, in a few hours. He asked me a couple of days ago, so he gave me a little bit of notice at least. <laughs> at first, I was like, dude, it's like, oh, I have so much to do. I don't even, uh, I don't know how, how I could possibly agree to this. And this is what was running through my mind as he was asking me. But at the very moment I was thinking that, I was also thinking, um, what an act of trust in the Holy Spirit it would be to say yes. <laughs> and as soon as you have a thought like that, you know, you, you got to buckle up. Because um, you, you can't, I mean, once you realize that it would be a much greater thing to put your faith in God, to say, okay, uh, I don't know how I could possibly do this, but I'll trust in you. Then you can't say no. You got to say yes. Good morning. So that's what was running through my mind at that moment. And I did say yes. And I told him what I was thinking. And he laughed. <laughs> he said, all right, whatever you want to say uh, will be just fine. So sure enough, I haven't had a chance to think about it even for five minutes since we had that conversation uh, until today. Now a few hours before the house meeting is upon us, I woke up this morning about 7 a.m. Since I had stayed up so late, I, I slept in a bit. I woke up and the, the thought was already in my mind of what am I gonna say today? And the Holy Spirit has been kind of whispering to my heart throughout the morning about what He wants me to say. Um, so the topic I'm going to speak about at the house meeting is discernment. And I thought since I'm recording this podcast right now anyway, this would be a fine opportunity to, well, try and express some of my thoughts. Maybe then when I speak at the meeting, um, they might be in a little bit better order. So you're getting the distinct privilege of hearing them in an unordered and chaotic fashion, as I happen to think of them. <laughs> so the topic of discernments. Other guys who shared their testimony this year have shared how they came to the seminary in the first place. And I was thinking, um, since we're near the end of the year, all the guys, of course, who will be hearing this have already made the decision to enter the seminary. They've already been with us, you know, for a year. Um, some of them are coming to the end of their first year or, you know, other like my classmates have been here for four years, about ready to move on somewhere new. So where, where we're really at right now is a time of evaluation. Um, looking back on the choice that we've made, discerning you know, how the year has gone, where God's calling us to go from here. So I thought what would be most maybe apt for me to talk about today is my decision um, about a year and a half ago to leave the seminary, to go and join the Carmelites in California, and ultimately my decision to return. Um, so just to examine that, to look at what are the major like movements of discernment? How did I make that decision? How um, did I ultimately decide to come back to Mount Angel and to my diocese? And what, what did it all look like from the inside? A lot of people have asked me about this, and I, I have shared pretty openly about it, um, more or less like comprehensively, I don't know, depending on how much time we've got. Because really, it's something, I feel like I could, I could talk about it forever, for hours, and uh, 
still wouldn't even really get to the heart of what what the matter is because something like this is so interior you know it's it's a matter of prayer and when i say that i I don't mean it in a a glib or a superficial way you know sometimes you can say oh i'll pray about that (laughs) what you really mean is uh i already know what i'm going to do but i don't want to tell you like straight up so i need a little bit more time and then I'll, i'll tell you no it's not that's not what i mean at all as a matter of prayer i mean this is something that happens in darkness um like a tree putting down roots or like a plant ever so slowly arising from the earth toward the sunlight. Something that happens in darkness, something that happens so gradually um, you're, you're not even aware of it until then all of a sudden at one moment it's like everything happens very, very rapidly and all at once. As my novice master said about discernment one time, it's like you ask God, again and again and again god what is your will god show me what you want all i want is to do what you want for me and you keep offering that prayer over and over and over and then all of a sudden at a certain time you couldn't have predicted it you know you couldn't have brought it about by your own will but um it all just crystallizes that's the word he used it crystallizes in your mind in your heart and all of a sudden you just realize what needs to be done God gives that in His time, according to His will, um, according to what you know, what He He knows we need, and the time in which He knows we need it, because He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows exactly when we need that kind of crystallization to see. Okay, all right, I've got some certainty now. I got a little glimpse of clarity, and now I know where I need to go next. But very much of the work of discernment takes place prior to that moment of receiving, like crystallization a a glimpse of clarity or as robert frost said in a phrase i love uh, a momentary stay of confusion you know much of the work of discernment takes place in confusion (laughs) and then uh, at a certain moment if you as, as you're persevering continuing to ask continuing to pray and be receptive and attentive you receive a momentary stay of confusion where it's like okay now i see but you can't hold on to it. It's not like from that moment on everything is hunky-dory, you know. It's only for a moment. And then, back into confusion. <laughs> and it's not always a state of like anxiety or perplexity. Um, it's very often, if you're in the right vocation, I suppose, it's a, a comfortable confusion. Comfortable because you realize you don't need to know all the answers. But never th- it's confusion nevertheless. Um, so this is just my prelude to what I want to say, but I've arrived at a lovely coffee shop, and I'm, so I'm going to pause this podcast for a moment and go in and get a cup of coffee. Could I have a simply spice latte, please? Thank you. Uh, Sixteen ounce would be good. Thank you. How's your day going? Good. Good. It's beautiful. Nice day. Yes. Right. <laughs> I feel so free. I just finished my thesis. Oh, that's awesome. So I've been working on it all year. That's just amazing. got it done. Yeah. Man, I've been working all year. Mm-hmm. I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs>
Bye-bye.